You know, I've been down here for so long that I almost completely forgot what personal hygiene really means. Not that I have a lot of options, considering I get to bathe in fire and brimstone all the time. But for the rest of you, there's Bruges. Bruges is an electric toothbrush that will change the way you think about brushing your teeth. With powerful sonic technology and ultra-gentle bristles, the Bruges redefines what it means to have super clean teeth. It's like that feeling you have when you just left the dentist. A fresh, whole mouth clean every single day. Right now, our listeners get 15% off their total purchase with code POD15. Follow the link on our social media feeds and enter the code POD15 to get your exclusive discount and upgrade to your oral care routine. And if you're wondering why it's called Bruges, that's because it's got that U with the two dots on top of it. Just, just so we're clear there. And now, in spite of our better judgment, this is Teller Hell. Since the beginning of time, Mankind has attempted to seek out the answers to life's greatest mysteries. And as the years have turned into decades, centuries, and millennia, new evidence is introduced that simply raises further questions to these already existing mysteries. Were the pyramids really built by man? Or did they get a little help from something otherworldly? Are Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster real? Or are they just elaborate tourist traps? Do ships really disappear in the Bermuda Triangle? Or do the people that pilot the ships have a lousy sense of direction? Answers to these and many other mysteries of life have attempted to be answered in the clearest and most concise of ways. But skepticism remains on every one of them, no matter how hard Leonard Nimoy tried to go in search of the answers. But in the midst of life's greatest mysteries, one of them has seen a particular case of bafflement so profound that simply asking it could drive a person to the brink of madness. The question being, how and why do people find this person to be funny? Homer, I've collected hundreds of antique cars in the theory that they don't make them like they used to. Well, I just bought this new Toyota. Turns out it's much better. I can go to the store and make it all the way back. It doesn't break down once. <laughs> Imagine that. Jeez. At one of the earlier heights of his fame, the man with the golden jaw was on top of the world. But long before he took the helm of the most storied talk show in history, people wanted to see if Jay Leno could carry a show of his own. Oh, he could carry it all right. Right over his shoulder long enough to throw off a cliff. In hell. James Douglas Muir Leno, yes, that's his actual full name, is probably one of the more enigmatic figures of showbiz. He's been around for almost 50 years, and by all accounts and purposes, he's considered by most people to be successful, largely doing things of a comedic nature. See where Ronald Reagan is running for president, I'm real excited about this. 
See, a lot of people think Ronald is too old to run. I think that's silly. I mean, in 25 years, a man will only be 100. You know, I think it's good for a president at least be half the age of the country he represents. You know. He's been on various TV shows, movies, and commercials because of it. He has used that success to purchase, seemingly, every automobile ever made, and still have enough left over to support noble causes. Most importantly, he's been doing comedy forever, and depending on who you ask about it, he's either the most hilarious person who ever existed, or the most infuriating. And not necessarily because of his comedy or even the sound of his voice while trying to perform comedy. But for the various ways, he comes out smelling like a rose whenever major shifts in late night TV wound up happening. I think the longer we just sit here, the more uncomfortable it will make Jay. <laughs> you know Jay's watching right now. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to lay the cards out on the table here. If you're a fan of him, I hold no grudges, and you're more than welcome to be one. But if you came here to listen to me heap a bunch of praises on the guy, not only have you come to the wrong place for that, but you've severely misjudged what we've been doing around here for the past 46 episodes. I personally never found the guy funny, and on the rare occasions when he would do something that would elicit even the most courteous of giggles, I wonder if a pocket of air made its way to my brain by mistake. Whoops, sorry, son. I didn't know you, Jay Leno, and a monkey were baiting a clown. Well, they are, so make with the loofah or get out! That moment right there almost caused me permanent brain damage. But I digress. The thing is, back when he was starting out as a humble stand-up performing at various clubs all over his birth state of Massachusetts, he actually had some uniqueness to himself. And I don't mean his giant jaw or his nasal tones. He was part of a new breed of comedian that was starting to take the country by storm back then. The kind that focused their act on observational musings instead of the more rat-a-tat-tat presentation that some of his predecessors were known for. And by observational, we, of course, mean the type of humor that makes you wonder, what's the deal with this thing? Who are these people? Yeah, 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 Seinfeld may have monopolized that the most, but back in the 70s, Leno ran with some pretty fast company. Letterman, Shandling, Klein, Jimmy Walker, George Miller, Tom Dreesen, and countless others who deserve their own documentaries. Still though, Leno's star was on the rise, up to and including appearances on various hit sitcoms of the era, including Alice, One Day at a Time, Laverne and Shirley, and the inimitable Holmes and Yo-Yo. But all of Leno's minor accomplishments paled in comparison to the one moment of his career that would put him on the map. The night of March 2nd, 1977, when Leno would perform at a place that would eventually become his future place of employment. I'm glad that you're all in a good mood tonight because it's always a pleasure to introduce a new comedian to The Tonight Show. This young man's name is Jay Leno, and uh, this is his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Later this year, he's going to make his film debut in The Silver Bears with Michael Caine, which is not bad. Would you welcome, please, Jay Leno. Jay? It was often said that a comedian's career isn't fully validated without first making an appearance on The Tonight Show during Johnny Carson's reign as the host. Even more so if you get called to the couch after performing your set. But Leno didn't get the couch. Instead, he wound up getting the desk. But that's another story for another podcast altogether, and possibly some books written by Bill Carter. Point is, after that one appearance on The Tonight Show, the floodgates opened for Leno, and he suddenly turned into one of the most in-demand comedians for the rest of the 70s and on into the 80s, 
when he would practically appear everywhere in sight and continue to peddle his brand of humor to anyone who was interested. You know, I've been out of California for about four or five months, and I just got back, and I notice now, when you call directory assistance here, you get a recorded message. If you're unable to find the number in your directory, please stay on the line, an operator will assist. Call the weather today. Have you looked outside? <laughs> so much so that by the year 1986, Leno was one of the most popular touring comedians in the world. Somehow. So much so that the network where he made the most of those appearances, NBC, offered Leno the first of what would be many long-term contracts to the network, one of which included not only becoming the permanent guest host of The Tonight Show, but one of his first contracts also included primetime and late-night specials for the network. One of those specials would take place during that fall of 1986, and is probably one of the bigger unknown oddities that ever aired on television. Unknown because not only did this show air a grand total of one time, but the most recent time it would even be referenced was as late as 2012 in a chapter of Bill Carter's book, The War for Late Night. Some of the details of which include that the show, for some reason, was to be taped at a reconstructed warehouse on a pier located underneath the Ben Franklin Bridge in Philadelphia. Why Philadelphia? And why under a bridge? Maybe these guys can explain it. Did you bring the toll? Confound your lousy toll, troll! <laughs> but in all seriousness, the real reason why this show was taking place in Philly was because, if this program were to be successful in any way, future editions of the show would travel to other parts of the country where the process would essentially lather, rinse, and repeat itself. This particular show, which, by the way, lasts 90 minutes with commercials, would air during one of the off weeks that SNL would have, back in a time when NBC would actually put on alternative programming during weeks when there wasn't a live show. So hopeful was the network in this unique form of programming that according to an article in the Los Angeles Times, network president Brandon Tartikoff declared, quote, we can once and for all crack that void that seems to exist in the field of comedy variety. Leno himself added in that same LA Times story, quote, I think a lot of problems with a lot of television comedy is that it's not done in front of real people anymore. A lot of it is inside. It's about the business of show business, which I find people in Akron and Warren, Ohio, and in theaters I've worked all over the country really aren't that interested in or don't seem to understand, end quote. With that much of a vote of confidence from the show's star and the network's president, we're going to see just how much the audience in flyover country tried to understand what the hell was going on. After the break. Experts claim kids aren't learning. Johnson, when was the Battle of 1812? 1776. <laughs> when it comes to more relevant subjects like nacho cheese Doritos, Williams, great nacho cheese flavor. Davis, that one-of-a-kind Doritos crunch. <laughs> Miss Gardner. It's America's favorite snack chip. Review, cheese, onion, tomato. Johnson, what are you doing? Uh, research? Excellent. Nacho cheese flavored Doritos brand tortilla chips. They taste as good as they crunch. Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives, the Internet's premier place for a lot of nostalgia from the 80s, 90s, and even the present. And that includes some vintage commercials, like this. If doing things different is your style, Genesee Cream Ale is your brew. 
Ever since we got a wood stove, I've got the lowest heating bill around. Yeah, and the biggest thirst. Next time that you're thirsty, make Jenny Cream your brew. The taste is something different. It's smoother drinking, too. I like it. Cause there's nothing like it. It's different. Genesee Cream Brew. Want to watch more retro goodies? Head to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives, or you can follow him on Facebook, also at Dave's Archives. And now, let's take a look at some terrible television. November 1st, 1986. The New York Mets bask in the glow of inexplicably winning a World Series. The Fox Network was four months away from premiering its first primetime lineup. And at 11.30, 10.30 Central, instead of watching John Lovitz tell us, yeah, that's the ticket, we begin this comedy experiment in the halls of a grand institution. Many great documents were written here in Philadelphia, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights. Philadelphia is also home to a document far more significant than any of these. A document that's helped us deal with a culture that grows more complicated every day. Of course, I'm talking about TV Guide. Well, can't complain there. Without TV Guide, how will I know which shows to condemn? Go on. With me today is the historian in residence here at TV Guide, Charles Nicholson. Charlie, how did all this come about? The first TV Guide just listed shows alphabetically. Then the framers of the guide, in a burst of inspiration, began to list shows by day and hour. The founding viewers at TV Guide realized that Americans don't want to take the time to find their favorite shows. They want to know what's on now. Oh, I see. Sort of a, a guide to TV viewing, literally uh, a TV Guide. Exactly, Jack. Now, notice throughout this piece, there is no sound of laughter to be heard. That's not your imagination. Then again, documenting TV is a serious business to some of us. The drafters of the guide were so far-sighted, they had a celebrity issue before we even had celebrities. This is not only a pre-season issue, this is a pre-television issue. Back when Americans didn't have televisions. Well, what did they do? This old-fashioned thing called reading. We then get to some extensive training in trying to keep TV Guide the most relevant magazine in the United States until it decided to stop selling digest-sized issues in 2005. Oh, all right, Friday, 8 o'clock, NBC, all 84. That would be Night Rider. The September 14th episode. Anybody? Yes. Uh, Kiss suffers computer dysfunction and endangers Michael's life. Very good. Now, who can give me a brief thematic summary of this week's cover story, Rise and Fall of a Sex Symbol? Yes, you. The theme of the article is that the temporality of physical attraction necessarily undermines one's prime time viability, and that descent into cable is inevitable. Excellent. Unfortunately for the so-called educated viewers, no training in the world can prepare them for the rest of the show. During the credits, we get to find out all of the dazzling special guest stars this program has to offer us via the show's announcer. Jay's guests are Vanna White, Doug Llewellyn, The Hooters, 
and from the Philadelphia 76ers, and Tony, Perry Moss, Jeff Rulin, and Dr. J, Julius Irving, with a special guest appearance by David Letterman. To recap, that's one game show hostess slash future telehealth victim next season, one once and future televised court reporter, a band that's probably not named after skimpy waitresses, three basketball players I've never heard of, one who was probably near retirement by that point, and somebody whose late-night talk show was worth watching back in the day. Considering the era, I'll say A for effort, but C-plus for the casting. Our show this time is coming to you from Pier 12 on the Delaware River, directly under the Ben Franklin Bridge in Philadelphia, on an experimental NBC coast-to-coast Okay, a couple things. One, they're saying that this episode is happening this time, as if we're supposed to believe that there's going to be a second one of these shows in the future. Which, if it isn't, that means I get to play this again. We bring you the pilots that and two, why are you calling this an experimental coast-to-coast broadcast? You're just a comedy special that's airing in SNL's time slot. Try not to oversell it too much, okay? Speaking of overselling something, I know most comedians are accustomed to performing in large theaters, or at least they will once large theaters open up once again. But the fact that Leno decided to do this show from a cavernous space of an abandoned warehouse with super high ceilings and hardly any acoustical tiling filtering out the echo, the only people who might actually get to benefit from hearing Leno's jokes are the people in the front row and those watching it on TV. If, however, even they get to benefit from it at all. The show kicks off with Leno doing what he's paid millions of dollars to do best. You know what happened to air travel? I mean, it used to be very elegant. You know, you look, you look at the slogans the airlines have. Three years ago, Delta Airlines, the slogan was Delta, the airline run by professionals. Last year, it went to Delta, we're ready when you are. You know, the new slogan is the actual slogan, but this year, Delta, we get you there. So shut up. And here's how a real comedian takes down Delta Airlines. And I go, why are you doing this to me? And they go, because we're Delta Airlines, and life is a fucking nightmare. Leno goes on, and I have yet to crack a grin. Then they give me that stupid airline safety card. You ever see this thing, the little card they have? And it's all in pictures rather than words, because they figure if you're flying on this thing, you're already illiterate, you know. They show you what to do in the event of a water landing. You know, in case the plane lands on the water. You know, this thing doesn't careen into the sea upside down on fire 60,000 feet a second. Just kind of lands on the ocean, gently kisses the shore, you know. They give you the impression like, oh, And those once again, here's a real comedian telling us how planes crash in the ocean. Your seat cushion can be used as a flotation device. Well, imagine that. My seat cushion. Just what I need to float around the North Atlantic for several days, <laughs> clinging to a pillow full of beer farts. Leno goes on, and I have yet to make any sounds of approval. Let me show you how to get into the emergency life raft. I mean, it's a joke. It's a joke. They have a guy. He's got one foot in the drawing on the life raft. He's got the other foot on the wing of the plane, and he's helping a young lady and skirt and heels into the life raft. This guy would grind his heel into her face to get out of that plane. Look out, sweetheart, I'm out of here. Get that damn baby out of the aisle. 
You can't get a guy to why is this funny? More so, why is this kicking off the show? I'm hearing material that's probably better suited to be performed by people who can actually elicit a laugh from me. And in the drawing, the plane is always Why would you start the show with material that could be packed into a sleeping pill? The guy just floating. He's got the look on his face like... Gee, I guess we'll be about an hour late the Here's the entertainment there, value of the words that are being spoken here. You know, I'm not putting down NBC. Why am I having a hard time keeping my eyes open while Leno drones on? Not even regular stops, just the kind of stops so like... Never mind, I think I just answered my own question. We changed planes in Atlanta, true story, I'm walking through the Atlanta airport. This goes on for about another minute. He's handing out free samples of these soft cookies. You know these soft cookies everybody's got in them? The guy gives me one, I eat it, I don't think anything about it. And then I get him on a connection flight and I realize, this is unbelievable. Here I am traveling all across the United States, I land in a strange city, a man I don't even know hands me something, and I eat it! I mean, I didn't even look at it, it's gonna be some kind of PLO cookie bomb, I don't know what this is. Oh, boy, well we've got a terrific show for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> oh, good, it's over. Or at least that part is, anyway. If that's how the show starts, it's either going to be uphill or downhill from here. Considering what we do here for a living, I'm skewing more towards the downhill as Doug Llewellyn, original reporter, reporter who got replaced, and ultimately replacement reporter for the long-running People's Court, tries to convince the naive TV audience that the TV courtroom's origins actually took place in Philadelphia. But let's face it, this is just an excuse to do a thinly-veiled People's Court parody. The plaintiff, the state of Pennsylvania, claims that the defendant murdered his entire family simply because they teased him. The defendant, on the other hand, claims that his entire family just tripped and happened to fall on kitchen knives. And I contend that those tourists were decapitated before they entered the crusty land house of knives. Next question. As we once again question why there's no audience reaction of any kind during this piece, we find out that there's more to this court than just daytime programming. And before a young Dick Wolf makes TV history three years later, we see how this primetime crime gets settled. Now the defendant said that on the night of the murder, he was at a party. And you said... At a party! Law and laughter, they go hand in hand. Considering most court shows are practically game shows anyway, I do have to give them a point for truth in advertising. But about 15 minutes into this show, I still have yet to laugh. Fortunately, Act 2 begins with a visit from somebody who's capable of making that happen. So won't you welcome tonight making his dramatic debut, Mr. David Letterman, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jay. Thank you for the wonderful opportunity, because you know I feel that the performers tonight... Great. 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 This is great. This isn't too embarrassing, huh? My first show, someone shoots Letterman. Great. And normally, I would question why somebody would want to kill off David Letterman on Jay Leno's show, but I think the answer to that would probably be best explained in Bill Carter's first book on the Late Night Wars, The Late Shift. So now that the show has turned into a mystery story, who shot DL? You know, I... I don't know whether we should go on with this show or something. Hey, if you want to cut bait and leave, that's another thing we won't hold against you. I think that's what Dave would have wanted. You know, he said to me, he said right backstage, not 20 minutes ago. Look, uh, Jay, do me a favor. If anything should happen to me, 
Stop the show immediately. Hot damn, I get to leave work early. See you next week. As I was saying, here's more of the show. You in the audience. Oh, in the audience. Oh, okay, great. Come on, let's talk to some of the people and see what we get here. Talk to the audience? Oh, God, this is always death. I swear the bits of Krusty the Clown being played over Leno's bits are purely a coincidence. Anyway, Leno works the crowd. And while some of the participants are indeed real audience members, the crowd work doesn't last too long. Yeah, I think um, everyone should be allowed to carry a gun. Hey, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what this is? This is a W. Yeah. This could be part of a clue. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. A scramble word, a puzzle, an anagram. This, this could be the key to the culprit's identity. We've got to collect every one of these letters, and when you're dealing with letters, you need the help of a professional. Vanna? So with a clue found, Jay recruits the help of Vanna White, America's favorite letter-turner and future star of the TV movie, Goddess of Love. Which I said we'll do next season. Calm down. But as long as she's here, this would be a good time to point out, and definitely not underscore the fact, that by 1986, Vanna White's popularity reached levels that are practically unheard of today, and all because she turned letters and looked good while doing so. Also, I believe this was around the time she wrote her memoir, Vanna Speaks. So for her to appear on late night television back then was equal parts justified, ratings grabber, and window dressing. I'm not kidding, all she does is stand at a bulletin board for the rest of the show while pasting up letters that Leno finds to find Letterman's killer. Comedy! Meanwhile, we're then treated to another piece without the use of a studio audience conditioning us to laugh, as Leno tells us about the meaningfulness of baby on board signs. Anyways, now it says baby on board, but I don't see a little tight down there anywhere. He's probably rolled under the seat. It's an awful hot day, and these windows are airtight. Every second counts. If only there was something... Hey, this will be great. So let that be a lesson to you, future parents. If you have a baby on board sign on your car, Jay Leno will come at your car with a sledgehammer just to make sure the baby's okay. Ugh. Show him how it's done, George. I don't know what valueless, soulless, yuppie cocksucker thought of that idea. Baby on board. Who gives a fuck? After that pointlessness, Leno introduces an actor dressed as a businessman who himself introduces a series of corporate America bloopers and practical jokes. A bit which, by the way, is one of the few in this show that's actually done before a live audience. So there's no excuse for us not to hear the audience laughing. Here's an oil company that felt steel tankers were a little pricey, so they came up with this baby. An aluminum tanker with a plywood reinforced hull. <laughs> sure, it's cheap, but hit a floating log and uh-oh, oil slick. <laughs> Major blooper. Hey, you'll need more than a handy wipe for that mess. <laughs> that bird looks about a quart low. Better throw it back in. <laughs> uh, now, here's a company laid great track. Tested it for snow, ice, rain, but not a copperhead penny. Ouch, that hurt. Except we never hear the audience laugh. Because what the hell is funny about natural disasters? You've got ducks covered in oil, train derailments, and nuclear bombs going off. Or as it's called down here in hell, an average Tuesday. The audience silence during that piece is more warranted as we now reach 33% of this show's completion. 
Act 3 sees us finding more clues in the quote-unquote murder of David Letterman, as well as Vanna White uttering some rare words of acting. This woman has a pair of eyeballs. Wait a minute. Can I, can I have those, please? Can I have those? Two, two eyes. Two eyes, of course. Vanna, look. Tear these eyes out and put them up in the pegboard. Yeah. So far, we have a W and two eyes. Have you figured out who the killer is? Do you care? From there, more audience hobnobbing. Now, Sarah, uh, how are you? What's your name? Tom. Tom, now, thanks for tucking your shirt tail in, sir, I guess. <laughs> you figured to be on TV, all the relatives you'd see, you'd go that extra mile, I guess, pretty much. Is that your motorcycle? No, That's your helmet? Uh, outside. You rode your bike tonight in the rain? Yes. Yeah, what, what kind of bike? Uh, 250 Honda. 250 Honda, so not quite a real bike, sir, actually, but... I know Jay Leno's supposed to be a comedian, but Don Rickles, he is not. Leno is too much of a good guy to ever be an insult comic, so let's just move on to a piece involving Leno at the Franklin Mint, birthplace of most of America's currency, a vast collection of mail-order curios, and a lucky penny refrigerator magnet that I carry around with me at all times, who I simply call Abe. Did somebody call my name? Not now, Wayne. Uh, next we have the chattering teeth, made of genuine ivory, uh, available in gold or silver. Each comes with its own handsome leatherette carrying case. Wind these up, you not only have a funny joke, you'll have a collector's item your family will treasure for generations. So after witnessing prop comedy even Carrot Top would shun, we then get a musical interlude from a local Philly band who call themselves... The Hooters! And while I'm sure this group is actually entertaining, they're really only doing me the favor of there not being any aborted comedy to discuss here. So, while we do thank them for being a distraction, let's just skip them for now. And just like that, we're in Act 4, where... This is the Bonner program. We endeavor to prove that Barnum was right. A sucker is born every minute. What's that cheese brain? You have trouble accepting that? Well, he should know, considering the number of them that watched his run to The Tonight Show, but go on. Here's one for the utterly mobile cheese brain. This is a new magazine on the stands, an actual magazine, walking magazine. Just what we need, a magazine that tells you how to walk. If you don't know how to walk, how are you going to buy the magazine? You're going to crawl to the newsstand? And once again, I defer you to Mr. Carlin, who offers a much better take. Look, Dan, the new walking is out. Here's a good article, putting one foot in front of the other. And before you think to yourself, wait a minute, George Carlin stole from Jay Leno? First of all, fuck you. George Carlin can do whatever the fuck he wants, even in the condition he's in now. And second, scene number one. Back to the hack. New York Times, House votes more in 87 for Star Wars. Same day, Wall Street Journal, House decides to reduce Star Wars money. Yeah, National Enquirer's starting to look pretty unimpeachable, isn't it, Piltdown Man? Huh? Speaking of ripoffs, Leno's delivery in this piece also seems strikingly familiar. But I just can't quite put my finger on how exactly. Maybe you want a compact display and you want the latest by Twisted Sister. Yes, Twisted Sister available on compact disc. Are they really doing some subtle musical nuance? Yeah. Friends, you can take the Golden State Freeway to the Ventura Freeway to the San Diego Freeway until you come to the Slauson Cutoff. Get out of your car, cut off your Slauson, get back in your car. Let's just cut to the next bit before we have to retain a lawyer. So finally, in a scene from The Glass Menagerie, in the role of Amanda, here's our own Miss Lou Leonard. And may 
making his dramatic debut from the Philadelphia 76ers, Andrew Tony as Floyd. And Harry Moss as Floyd. And Jeff Ruland as Floyd. And in the role of Floyd, Dr. J, Julius Irving. Well, since none of the show has been considered funny so far, maybe this dramatic scene on a comedy show might actually elicit a laugh. Because clearly, this show was made in a parallel universe. <laughs> oh, uh, what did she say your name was? Floyd. Floyd Rayford. Oh, Charmin! <laughs> oh, you can always tell the character of a man by his handshake. <laughs> oh, uh, won't you sit down? Oh! <laughs> Thank you, ma'am. This is a very good cookie. <sighs> We're halfway through this. We're halfway through this. Just keep telling yourself you're halfway through this, and we'll be all right. It's going to be all right. The comedy attempts to come back in Act 5 with another field piece, this time about what it's like to be single in Philadelphia. The comedic possibilities are limitless, I'm sure. What's it like to be single in Philadelphia? Let's check it out. Saturday night is not fun for all Philadelphians. A lot of Philadelphians, it's work. Just meeting the right people requires more than just going out and hanging around. A lot of scientific thought goes into the process. Clarity. Did I say comedic possibilities were limitless? Silly me. I meant the running time of this bit that goes nowhere is limitless. Okay, it's only two minutes long, but the directionlessness of the bit is making me feel like we're sitting here for an eternity. So, to help pad things out, I'm going to now rattle off this list of activities that are more interesting than this entire bit while the bit is going. <coughs> Grass growing. Paint drying. Cheese aging. Snails racing. Snails fucking. Snails being cooked as a French delicacy. Snails shriveling when you pour salt on them. Snails watching paint dry. Snails watching grass grow. Snails watching cheese age. Several dozen college lectures on the biology of the snail. Gail the snail from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. A snail painting an S on his car so that whenever he goes around in traffic, people can say, Look at that S car go. <laughs> Practically anything else to do with snails is more entertaining than this bit. So please, what else do you got? There used to be a show here in Philadelphia, a fine show. In fact, you might say it was an institution. Then about 20 years ago, it just disappeared. Why? We're going to spend the next three and a half hours trying to find out. This is where it all began, and this is where it ended. Amara and Banton. Here now is another list of things that are more interesting than this piece that tries to pass itself off as cutting-edge comedy. Traffic jams. Standing in line just about anywhere business is conducted. Being put on hold. Putting junk mail in a paper shredder. Slow internet. Being broke. Being rich. House cleaning. Taking a selfie. Paying bills. Social media challenges. Forcing a conversation with someone you don't know. 
forcing a conversation with somebody you do know, searching for a parking space, putting together a PowerPoint presentation, waiting for your phone to recharge, rice cakes, replacing a roll of toilet paper. Sweet fuck, is this still going? So we find ourselves back where we began, enigmatizing a riddle wrapped in a mystery. Here in a rundown studio where nothing is left of American Bandstand except some memories and stock footage of kids dancing. In enigmas. Why did American Bandstand leave Philly? That answer will go with Dick Clark to his grave, which at this rate could take hundreds of years. Oh, thanks. Satan, that's over. <sighs> How are things going on the fake Letterman murder case? See what we got. W-I-Alpha-Lettuce-T-Fatima-Will. Wait a minute. V, V, that's a clue. V, Venna, hang that dress on the pegboard right now. V for Venna. Get V, Lee. All right, all right, Lou. Lou, you make up a V or something. Just put it up there, all right? We then dive headfirst into our next piece of hackery. Our lives are good, and they seem to be getting better all the time. Right now, we're going to talk to the director of the Philadelphia Organ Transplant Institute, Dr. Elizabeth Williams. Please tell me Leno's not going to steal from Monty Python next. Hello, uh, can we have your liver? This is a gas-powered, two-horsepower engine you carry with you on your back. Very impressive. Yes, this tube here regulates the blood supply. It plugs right into the left ventricle. I see, kind of like a vacuum cleaner connection. Very similar. As you see, we've designed this so the layperson can operate it easily. He doesn't look too good there. Well, he's off the old heart, and the new one hasn't started yet. What about oxygen? Shouldn't that have... oxygen thing is an old wives' tale, Jay. We have several minutes before any real brain damage occurs. The motor's cold. These things can be very tricky. It should start right up. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm... I'm actually laughing at something in this show. The notion of a full-sized vacuum cleaner being used as an artificial heart while somebody shoves pasta down a patient's throat actually garnered a minor chuckle from me. And it only took 47 minutes for the show to do. Wow, okay, I feel renewed. And hopefully with 20 minutes to go, they can carry whatever meager energy there was from that bid into the rest of the show. So, on to Act 6, and... Why do people even talk to Mike Wallace? You ever wonder about that? I mean, you're sitting in your house, you look out your front door, there's a CBS field generator out there, six trucks, Mike Wallace got a portfolio this thick with your name, get the hell out of there! You had to squander it. You had to, you had to fucking squander the one comedy piece in the entire show that was actually kinda sorta funny by going back to the lukewarm crowd work and even lucre warmer stand-up. Come on, give me something good! There's one thing Philadelphians love to do, it's travel. For many, it could be a weekend in Camden or a drive to Cherry Hill, New Jersey. For others, it's that once-in-a-lifetime trip to Atlantic City, New Jersey, the gambling capital of Atlantic City, strangely enough. This is Why are we looking at a bunch of elders and foreigners boarding a bus to a casino? Why is this taking over SNL's time slot for an evening? Why am I actually watching this? Why am I here? I mean, why am I literally here? Welcome to the Atlantic City bus, ladies and gentlemen. This is All I did was try to get a free cable hookup so I could watch HBO without paying extra. Did that really warrant a lifetime of eternal damnation? I mean, granted, it says, thou shalt not steal, but I would think that would be for a much higher crime than crossing a wire or two and getting electrocuted in the process. 
And now, here I am, watching the most boring comedy show I've ever seen in my afterlife. No sin in the world is worth this. Or at least nothing this minor. I mean, sure, if you murder somebody, the punishment's going to be more painful, but at least that's more exciting than watching this. Spend $500 every time and win. And win every time. I guess that's why you're taking the bus, sir. Okay, nice to see you. Going down to do some yeah, winning today? Hope to win some big bucks. Hope to win some big bucks. Okay, young lady. How are you, sir? Now, what is this you have here? This is the renter's guide? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are, are, are you going down to Lincoln City to do some renting? That, that would be your ticket, sir. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, you don't have to show it to me. I think you need to show it to the man in the bus. And it ends. Any second now, this it door's just close ends with the bus speeding away. Vacation of a lifetime. We don't even get to see Atlantic City or any of the gamblers in action. That's the point! Thankfully, there is one other highlight in this, and that's the bid featuring the show's announcer. One, Miss Lou Leonard. Another one of those unsung actors who made her living doing bit parts in various movie and TV shows throughout the 70s and 80s. In this piece, it looks like she's going to give us some helpful hints around the home. Today, let's take a look at a valve job. Once you remove the engine from the car, Remove the cylinder head and place it on a clean surface. Now, take out the valve guides and scrape off the carbon deposits. Look for scoring around the valve guides. If they're worn, you may want to bronze them. They'll get less wear. While we're in here, we also want to inspect the pistons, rings, and connecting rods. <laughs> By the way, save the old rubber O-rings from the oil filters. They make great cap liners for mason jars. Well, if nothing else, at least I know now how to change the pistons in a car that was manufactured sometime between the mid-1970s and the early 80s. So thank you for that helpful hint, Lou Leonard. Now go give Al Bundy an enema. It's enema time! <laughs> Someone ring the bell! At least that seems more entertaining to watch than the rest of this show. Speaking of which... Back by popular demand, The Hooter! Great, another musical performance. Any reason to make this show end sooner. And by the way, this is no disrespect to the Hooters by any means. I know they've been around for well over 40 years, and this show pretty much documented them at one of their many peaks, but I'm only skipping them because it's just a musical performance in the middle of a comedy show. Now, if they were actually acting in sketches, that might be another story, but for now, I'm just grateful that their performances here help run out the clock. As we now go to a bit about a husband and wife pair of movie critics, which goes probably about as well as you think it does. Isn't there any originality left in the world? Can't you think of a creative way to get rid of your guests? Whoa! What a roller coaster ride of excitement this critic has ridden tonight. This show has had everything. Great A performances, visual excitement, left this reviewer breathless. Okay, maybe not exactly as well as you think it does, but the murders do actually kind of improve things, so I gotta give another point for effort there. Which brings us to another film piece. One where the show's performers use an ATM that looks suspiciously like a vending machine. So you stick in loose change and get a wad of bills? That's the joke. Okay then. Utilitarian, but brief. So another point in the positive column. But still an insurmountable debt to make up. As we get to the final piece of a show, a story told by one of the godfathers of spoken word jazz and movie trailers, the late great Ken Nordine. And if you don't know who he is, 
educate yourself for a couple of seconds, and then come back, because this very well may be the biggest highlight of an otherwise pointless endeavor. And as a reward for having sat through all of this comedy word salad, I'm gonna do something that I normally don't often do. I'm gonna play you this story that Nordine narrates in its entirety. Because God damn it, after over an hour of non-comedy, not to mention the past three years of reviewing some of the worst TV I've ever seen, I think it's about time that we got some culture up in here. Enjoy! She had the same dream every night. She was walking at twilight down a deserted country road. It was strangely quiet. No birds sang, no crickets, no frogs. Even the trees were still, the leaves motionless. In her dream, she rounded a bend in the road. There, nestled between two high oak trees, was a small cottage. Somehow, she knew this cottage was her final destination. She stood at the fence and watched the curl of smoke rise from the chimney. There was nothing here to be afraid of. So why was she so afraid? As if in answer to this unspoken question, the attic window would slowly open, and there, framed against the darkness within, a man's face would appear. An old man's face, pale, long, deep sunken eyes like holes. Then the old man would step back into the shadows within, and she would awaken. The dream ended the same way every night. The dream was all she could think of. It was with her all the time. She needed to get away. She, she thought of a place that she'd been to in the country, an inn. Yes, a, a weekend in the country, that's what she needed. And so she found herself at twilight, driving down a, an abandoned country road. She had missed her turnoff. She was lost. She was driving one-handed, trying to unfold the map. That's when she drove into the tree. She looked up in shock to see the spider web of cracks that her head had made in the windshield. She climbed shakily out of the car and suddenly realized this was the road of her dreams. It was sunset. There was the same eerie silence the total absence of noise and motion. She began to walk, she rounded the bend, and there was the cottage, the whisk of smoke rising from the chimney. And there she stood by the gate, her head slowly clearing. The attic window slowly opened, and there was the man's face staring at her. Only this was no dream, she thought. This was real. She was here, here at last. The old man vanished from the window. She walked through the gate, up the path to the front door. She knocked. There was silence. She knocked again. No reply. Please, please let me in, she said. The door opened suddenly, and the old man was standing there. She stood back a step, and they stared at each other. 
What is this place, she whispered. Who are you? I live here, he said. Nobody else will live here. Why not, she asked. Because it's haunted, he said. Haunted? Haunted by what? Haunted by you. That one piece almost makes this entire numb slog of comedic antimatter worth watching. But I have to put italics on almost because having one really good moment in the middle of a bunch of comedy pieces that go absolutely nowhere reminds me of this classic quip that the late Harvey Corman once made about using Viagra at his age. The idea of my using Viagra would be like putting a brand new flagpole on a condemned building. But wait, you say, what about the totally fabricated murder of David Letterman? How does that get resolved? Okay, wait, let's go over it. W-I, L for lettuce, T for tomato, V-I-N-E, wilt vine. There you go, wilt vine. No, it doesn't mean anything, is it? It's an anagram, it's a puzzle. You gotta unscramble it to find the killer. Look, you're the puzzle expert, man. What does it mean? Jay, I've been on Wheel of Fortune for years and I still can't figure this one out. This show isn't gonna end until we find Letterman's killer. What? We're out of time. Oh. Good night, everybody! But before you think they would leave people twisting in the wind, the wind twists back, as we see this final scene after the credits roll where Philly paramedics take fake Dave's corpse and throw it into the Delaware River. Possibly as a metaphor for what would ultimately happen to him several years after he moved to CBS. <laughs> Now, you may think that this was a rip-off of an ending, but then I remember something that Leno said nearly an hour earlier. Listen, those of you that are taping it, play the tape back slowly tonight. Play it back slowly, and I think you'll find the hidden clues that maybe help us figure out who the culprit is. Well, if you were savvy enough to have owned a VCR back in 1986, or if you happen to come across this show on YouTube, do us all a favor and pause the video right around the 14 minute and 58 second or 59 second point where Letterman gets shot, and you'll see that the person pulling the trigger was somebody wearing a loud sports coat, big jaw, and pencil-thin mustache. And right under that blip is an answer to the anagram that we just heard at the close of the show. W-I-L for lettuce, T for tomato, V-I-N-E, Wiltvine. There you go, Wiltvine. Rearrange the letters and you have the words, Evil Twin. That's right, Jay Leno's Evil Twin killed, or quote-unquote, killed David Letterman. Wait a minute. This all makes perfect sense now. Leno constantly beat Letterman in the late night ratings for all those years and is also the reason why he was able to do stand-up comedy at the same time. It was the evil Jay Leno who hosted The Tonight Show because the real Jay Leno was too much of a nice guy to do anything malicious. Which is why he made his real money on the stand-up circuit while the evil Leno not only convinced millions of people to watch The Tonight Show for all those years, but also altered Conan O'Brien's career trajectory. At the fact that this special takes place in Philadelphia and all of a sudden, this makes sense. Pepe Sylvia, this name keeps coming up over and over again. Every day, Pepe's mail's getting sent back to me. Pepe Sylvia, Pepe Sylvia, I look at the mail. Was this whole is Pepe Sylvia! Evil Jay Leno's real name is Pepe Sylvia! It all makes sense now! 
Either that, or I'm reading way too much into a comedy special that lacked in any comedy. Fortunately, I'm not the only one who felt the show had a comedy deficiency. Where does the 1986 Jay Leno show drive its antique cars into telehell? Lucky for them, our parking garage is the size of our nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Let's begin with the notion that this was supposed to be the first in an attempted series of shows that were set to take place all over the country if it ever got picked up. But as announcer Lou Leonard said, Remember, if you don't like this one, there won't be any more. Long story short, people didn't like it, so there wasn't another one, putting the notion of that version of Jay Leno in limbo. We also have ample use of Vanna White and one particular joke involving her taking off her dress for the sake of a murder investigation, so we've got some collateral lust to deal with. An investigation, by the way, to a fake murder of somebody who's actually funny, to say nothing of the other fake murders that happen later on in the show, so we get grazed with violence. As for the show on the whole, this was probably one of those times when NBC was better off putting on wrestling in the late night Saturday time slot not being occupied by Lorne Michaels that week, because the network just signed Leno to a lucrative and most likely expensive long-term contract. They probably wanted to get their money's worth as soon as they could, regardless of the show's outcome. Enter greed. A type of greed that was only made possible by the network's gluttonous desires to land a signature star at the first major height of his popularity. A New York Times review of the program dismisses 90% of the show as either being too clunky or jokes flying too fast for even the studio audience to fully grasp, concluding that next time, Leno and NBC should put something together that's a little more tidy. And when you wind up with something this convoluted, you either change the channel or you go get some sleep, which seems kind of apt considering Leno would practically spend the next 30 years of his career causing people to sleep with their TVs still on. The 1986 Jay Leno Show earns five out of nine circles of telehell. It almost seems hard to imagine Leno continuing to have any success of any kind after the show came and went, but as we all know by now, he did. First as permanent guest host of The Tonight Show, then replacing Johnny Carson altogether, then quote-unquote retiring so Conan O'Brien could take over, only for Leno to take it back after blowing it big in primetime, ultimately leading to him showing off his cars on cable TV. Like I said at the top, if you're a fan of him, more power to you. But for the life and death of me, I just don't understand why Jay Leno is as popular as he is, was, and always destined to be. And until we get more definitive proof, his popularity is just going to have to remain one of life's greatest mysteries. Next time on Telehell, better late than never, we wrap up season three with some good old fashioned exploitation and grave robbing. There was nothing in El Capone's vault, but it wasn't Geraldo's fault. Don't! And I promise I'm going to reduce the number of Simpsons clips in the next episode. It's, it's just too easy. Oh, anyway, until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. 
Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. Mm-hmm.